This is Thought and Leaders. Hello, 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 and welcome again to another Thought and Leaders. And as you know, I scour this planet to get the brightest, the most inspiring, the most relevant to what's going on in life, leaders at the moment. And this week is absolutely no exception. This man is a legend. Uh, He's a legend in political fields. He's a legend as a journalist. Um, His name is... Ian Dell. Hello, Ian. Hello. Well, after that build-up, I suppose we've got a lot to live up to, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself for the, for the only person in, in, in a cave somewhere who hasn't heard of you. Um, I present the evening show on LBC Radio. I've been doing uh, radio for about 10 years now. I've always been involved in politics or the media in some form or other. Um, I used to run a publishing company, Bite Back Publishing, and I write for various national newspapers. So I'm basically a gob on a stick. <laughs> very, very good. I want to take you back, uh, Ian, to 2005 when you started your blog. Yeah. In the new book, you talk about a blog being uh, a democrat- democratizing force. Now, you've got a lot of people on that blog. You've got 20,000 people a day. That's crazy. Well, it was at the time. It doesn't sound an awful lot now because blogging has kind of been surpassed by Twitter in some ways. Um, and, and I mean, I've got 212,000 followers on Twitter. So that's quite a lot compared to what I had on the blog. But if you think about the uh, circulation of the Independent or the Guardian at the time, I mean, that, that was quite good. I, I was getting as many readers as the New Statesman got, which for a one man band compared to a sort of, I don't know, 80 year old magazine, that, that wasn't bad at all. And the reason why I said that blogs were democratising was because if you think about it, before the internet, if Mrs. Miggins at 32 Acacia Avenue wanted to sound off about something, how would she do it? Well, she might write a letter to the Daily Telegraph once a year, probably wouldn't get it published. Her local newspaper might publish a letter, but that was about it. Whereas with the advent of blogs, with the advent of social media, Mrs. Miggins has a real voice and she can say it whenever she wants, on whatever she wants, to anyone that she wants. And that is quite a powerful position for an individual to be in. The trouble is, of course, and this is part of the reason why I wrote the book, um, a lot of people have abused that position, um, particularly on social media, perhaps more so than on blogs. Exactly, because I mean, nowadays, uh, with Twitter and the like, but I would say basically with Twitter, uh, it's, it's all very soundbitey, isn't it? At, at least with your blogs here, when I used to read your blog, you know, you get into it, you get into, you know, the, the meat of the discussion. Whereas with Twitter, there ain't no meat. It's just like gristle and it's like who's got the best gristle. Yeah. And it's who can get there, um, quickest because. Um, I, I remember when I was doing the blog, I, I got a few, quite a few journalistic exclusives. And of course, the pressure is to get it out there before anyone else does. On Twitter, you've literally got maybe 10 seconds to decide what to write. And of course, sometimes you make a really big error. Sometimes you go completely over the top. And um, it can lead to some very unfortunate uh, positions for people. And I, I've had to apologize over the years for things that I've written in haste, which had I sat back and thought about it a little bit, I probably wouldn't have written. And, and I mean, that is the simple thing that you have to do. You do have to stop yourself. If there's any doubt in your mind about tweeting something, just don't tweet it. it it's so simple, but so many people just ignore it and, and then fall foul of Twitter. Clement Attlee in 1951, talking about a different world, hey, Ian? 
uh, it says here. I'm going to just read from this from this part from your book here. It says the art of the political interview has changed a lot over the years. I remember you say seeing an audio clip of an of an interview with Clement Attlee in 1951. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the coming election? Asked the ever so eager interviewer. No, replied Mr. Attlee. Well, thank you very much, Prime Minister. And that was the end of that. <laughs> yeah, and that, that that was not the exception. There was another one with Harold Macmillan. I think he'd come back from a trip to Africa and it followed the, the same lines. There was no rigorous questioning about it at all. It was an opportunity for the politician to say whatever they felt like at the time. And if they didn't want to say anything, they didn't say anything. And if the interviewer had ever said, well, come on, we need something from you, or words to that effect. I mean, there would have been hell to pay. It was it was Sir Robin Day, or Robin Day as he was back then, in the, I think, late 1950s, that um, when ITN started, he was the first one to start taking politicians to task. And of course, we've ended up uh, where we are now, when virtually every political interviewer, all they're looking for is a gotcha moment. They're not looking for information. They're not looking for elucidation or explanation. They just want to make a headline for themselves and their programme. And that is why in part, our public discourse is declining. Trust in politicians is declining. There's many other reasons, but it's because many interviewers think that um, politicians are automatically lying to them. Uh, and they're not generally. I mean, there may maybe on the odd occasion, they will tell an untruth. And that is, everyone's got a right to expose that. But no one should go into an interview uh, with the attitude that I'm going to get this one. It's just the wrong thing to do, in my view. It's very gladiatorial now, isn't it? It's them versus the other guys. So the the bad guys are the press and then the good guys are supposed to be the MPs, although that is debatable. But it's basically a gladiatorial contest, isn't it now? Yes, it is. And and that's where I think both the uh, media and the politicians let the public down. Because the politician, I mean, if you're not an experienced politician and you're going into an interview with somebody like John Humphreys or Jeremy Paxman, okay, neither of them are around anymore doing those kind of interviews, but with that kind of interviewer, inevitably they're going to be on the defensive because they know that they're going to get, probably get ripped apart. So what happens then? You're a human being, because believe it or not, politicians are human beings as well. If you think you're going to be attacked, your shutters go up your defence mechanism comes in. And what you do is just repeat the soundbite that your spin doctor has given you. And nobody gets anything from that at all. The interviewer doesn't, and the listener or viewer certainly doesn't. What we've got to now is a position where some some of us are trying to fight back against that. I mean, I, I will get down and dirty with any politician if they give me the excuse. If I think they're lying to me or spinning me a yarn, yep, I'll, I'll go for them as well. But I think the long-form political interview is making a comeback now. And if you think about it, after 15 or 20 minutes, the politician hasn't got any sound, more sound bites. They've actually got to say something interesting. And I find if, if I do a half-hour interview, my news line generally comes at minute 27 or 28 because then they've relaxed and they say things that maybe they wouldn't have done before.
One of the politicians you speak about in the book, uh, who's very well known and high profile, tends to be someone that they, they roll her out, according to what you're saying, in terms of she will give the standard answer to whatever you ask her. So there's not much of a question because you're, you're just going to get the, the same old soundbite from this person. And that must be very frustrating for journalists. I don't know why you're being so coy because I do name her in the book. But it's pretty, pretty Patel. Okay. Who, I mean, I've I've known Pretty for I don't know tw- more than twenty years, and if you met her in a bar and struck up a conversation with her, you think, what a lovely person, sparkling, bright, funny, engaging, and yet on the media she comes across as a bit of a robot. And I remember the day that Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party. I, I was on air. And so she was put up by the Conservatives to give a reaction. So I expected her to, I just asked her at the beginning, so what's your reaction to Jeremy Corbyn winning the leadership? Now, any normal person would have said, well, I'd like to congratulate him. It's a tremendous victory for him and I wish him all the best. However, and then you go on with your party political attacks. She didn't bother with that. <laughs> she just got into it straight away. And, and uh, he is a danger to the country's security. He's a danger to the e- economic security. He's a danger to your family's security. So I let her go. I let her go on with this a bit, and I just said, "So you're not going to congratulate him then?" <laughs> It's not my job to congratulate him because he's a danger to our country's security. And then she went on. Right. And I said, no, it may not be your job, Pretty, but it'd be just polite, wouldn't it? And she took great exception to that. And I didn't interview her again for about another four years. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, um, by contrast, and I, um, I talk about this in the book, Rob Halfon, the Conservative MP, he was on my show. And he, um, I can't remember what the subject was that he was being interviewed on, but he didn't know his subject, and I completely ripped him to pieces. <laughs> and anyway, later that evening, my phone went, and it was him. And I thought, oh, God, do I answer this or not? Yeah. Anyway, I did. And he started off, he said, Ian, I just want to thank you. Mm. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, because you taught me a valuable lesson there that I shouldn't go into an interview when I d- don't know the subject properly. So thank you very much. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's an, ad- that's an adult way of dealing with it. Pretty Patel's way of dealing with it was not an adult way of dealing with it. And I think a lot of politicians can learn from th- those, those two experiences. Wow. But then again, she, she's, now home, she's now home secretary yeah. and he's a backbencher. <laughs> <laughs> model of a modern lobby journalist and when it comes to desperate speculation I'm a medalist I know the Brexit players and I'm quite the Twitter pugilist and even if I've nothing new to say my musings can't be missed uh, I know our Brexit history too just like a nerdy archivist though some may say my contributions closer to an arsonist I dream of ditching boring facts and going full polemicist uh, I hear the pay is great when you're a full-time controversialist Although about a Brexit deal I'm hearing positivity Consensus never comes with all this endless sensibility But still it all thinks speculative, wrong and controversialist I am the very model of a modern lobby journalist well, you, We were talking about this idea, you're talking about uh, lies and, and, and all that sort of idea And I said I'd come back to this Because in the book, you talk about fake news Now you say in the book that fake news is not from the press it's from the politicians do you still think that then 
Well, it depends. I mean, it can be either. Um, a, a tabloid newspaper can put up a, a outrageous headline, which might have a scintilla of truth in it, but it's an exaggeration. Now, is that fake news? Um, it's partial news. Um, politicians will spin statistics any way they want. You look at the coronavirus death counts in all sorts of different countries, and you, you can literally spin them anyway. Some countries include care home deaths, others don't. So mm. obviously, any politician is going to use the s- statistics which back up the case that they're trying to make. Now, I think the media and politicians underestimate the intelligence of the general public mm. because most of us most of us can spot a wrong and most of us can spot when a politician is on the ropes or not telling the the whole truth right and you know we can cope when with, with things when they go wrong we can cope with a politician admitting that they got something wrong the only time i've ever really i can remember a politician coming out of an apology badly was nick clegg on tuition fees um, but even he managed to rescue that because do you remember that somebody made a song about it? And if we've lost your trust, that's how I hope we can start to win it back. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm also very... Uh, and he, he embraced that, even though he knew that it was taking the piss out of him. He embraced it. Um, uh, but if you think of most political apologies, no one thinks badly of a politician for saying sorry. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a human thing to do. We all do it. Speaking to um, a really nice guy for the show, uh, a guy called Sir Cary Hooper, he felt that politicians should apologise more. He said if they muck it up, they should just basically say, I got it wrong. He said, and people would respect them for it. And I said, are you joking? And he said, no. What do you think? Well, I, I think people do respect people when they get, get it wrong. But the trouble is, if you do it all the time, a, a one-off apology works very well. But if you're apologising every week and you look at, I mean, we're recording this in the middle of July. If you think about the number of U-turns that this government had done on various things, over over the not just over coronavirus but over all sorts of things it's sort of remember the u-turn if you want to well boris johnson says thank you very much i will then um which is which is the exact opposite of what most political leaders do but again because of his personality he gets away with it in a way that others don't I know. People accept Boris Johnson, not everybody, obviously, but people accept Boris Johnson, warts and all. They, they, they're, not, they're not interested in how many children he's got. He won yeah. an election with a majority of 80, with all of these sort of personal weaknesses in his background. And the electorate shrugged their shoulders and said, I don't care. He's what we need for the country now. Now, time will tell whether the electorate made the right decision. But generally, you know, yeah. if you look back in history, the electorate makes often the right decision. I can't recall over the past, well, really ever since the war, when you thought, well, actually, that politician should have won the election over that one. The election, the electorate generally call it about right. Um, in 1979, people were fed up with the way the country was going, uh, and they elected Margaret Thatcher. Now, I'm a devoted Thatcher admirer. I know you are. 
that was sort of my first election, really, that I took any notice of. But then in 1997, the Tories had run out of steam. So Blair came in. And again, looking back, that was the right decision for the electorate to make. Individuals, I think, are a lot wiser when they come together and vote in an election, a lot wiser than often certainly the media gives them credit for. Now, you were saying, Ian, that this is being recorded in mid-July, okay? One of the things in terms of the electorate, you know, deciding on who to vote for and things like that, is that when it comes to millennials and younger generations of them too, they are not getting the media in the way that you and I uh, have to receiving the media in terms of, you know, whether it be TV or reading newspapers, whatever it might be. And most of the media is free and it's in sound bites, yeah? A day is a, is a long time. It used to be a week. I suppose it's now an hour in politics is a long time. But, you know, did you know that in the National Portrait Gallery, they say most people, they will linger at a, over a picture for eight seconds. That's it. After eight seconds, they move on. In the book, you talk about 90 seconds, that people, it's all about getting a 90 second video or audio clip out there. So how do people get a a true picture of what's going on with all these sound bites? I'm not sure eight seconds counts as a linger, by the way. I'm not, I'm not sure what I I would use that. (laughs) Yeah, well... I mean, this has been going on for quite a long time. It's not just the internet that's brought this about. If you think about uh, Newsman tabloids were very word heavy. They weren't picture heavy. Uh, When colour pictures came in, when today newspapers started in the mid-1980s, that meant that there were fewer words to go around. And this is where actually tabloid journalists are much more skillful than their broadsheet counterparts because try try explaining the... um, I'm trying to think of an example here. Try Try and explain... Um, the Skripal story in 150 words. But that's what you have to do if you're a Sun journalist, and they do it bloody well. Uh, and yes, they get they they use slightly more lurid language than broadsheets, but people are used to having the attention span of a flea. Uh, and, and it is true to some degree, and I think it is particularly true maybe of younger generations, and that's where the 90-second uh, soundbite comes from that goes viral. I mean, I have been told on occasion or asked on occasion, at the top of your hour, can you do a 90-second monologue that we can put out as a video clip? And I resist it because I'm. Well, they actually say a 90-second rant rather than a, a considered opinion. And, okay, there, there are things I'm quite happy to have a 90-second rant about, but I can't do it to order. It has to be natural. And when I started my For the Many podcast with Jackie Smith, we were told that it should be maximum 20 to 30 minutes long. And I said, well, why? Why? It's a podcast, not a radio show. And they said, well, that's the average length of someone's commute. And I said, yeah, but they commute two ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so I think that one was about 30 minutes. But now, if we've got stuff to say, we'll drone on for a couple of hours. Yeah. I mean, it's not often we do a couple of hours, but they're generally 60 to 90 minutes long. And I have not in two and a half years had a single person ever email me to say, can you please make these a bit shorter? Not a single one. So there is an appetite there for, for the longer form. If the content is there. I mean, it's all back, it all boils down to, is the content there? Yeah. Andrew Neil in this week, he described, he, well, he, he, he coined a term. He coined the term the Ian Dell question. Uh, now, what, Mr. Ian Dell, is the Ian Dell question? 
Well, I have to say that did wonders for my ego, and it was probably one of the, my the proudest moments of my life. I'd loved my mother to have heard him say that because she she would have just swelled with pride. Um, it came about. Do you remember in 2017 Theresa May's disastrous conference speech, where the lettering fell off the backdrop? She had a cough. Someone invaded the stage. Everything that went wrong could go wrong. Well, I had been trying to persuade Number Ten to get her to do a phone in with me. And they agreed to do it five days after that conference. Now, I thought they would cancel, but they didn't. She came into the studio. Oh, yeah. And I had her for half an hour. In fact, I think it was I persuaded to stay for uh, an extra 10 minutes. Mm. And she she's not a natural phone-in answerer. I mean, she's quite... <sighs> She's quite difficult. She doesn't open up very well. But she was handling the questions really well. Nice. And then a woman phoned in, phoned in on Brexit. I think an Italian citizen wanted to know about her rights after Brexit. And she really floundered on, on the question. And I then followed it up by saying, Prime Minister, um, there's a lot of people are arguing for a second referendum. If there were a second referendum, how would you vote, leave or remain, given that you voted remain and you're leading a leave government? Okay, and the look of terror on her face was something to behold. Mm. You know that sort of slightly gurning thing that she did whenever she was in trouble. <laughs> it was a bit like Gordon Brown used to do this. Well, she'd sort of just her chin out. Oh my god! And, and she, she, <laughs> she said, "She said, well, of course, that's a hypothetical question. No, it's a ridiculous." Question. I said, "No, it's, it's not a ridiculous question because I think the country has to know how their prime minister would vote in those circumstances, given that you are." presumably if you're leaving the eu you believe it's a good thing now Mm. and she then blustered again and um i said anyway it's not a hypothetical question i asked jeremy hunt the same question at your conference last week and he said he had voted remain and he would now vote to leave would you prime minister (laughs) and she just went to pieces and the number 10 people afterwards were furious with me because they said, this was supposed to be a phone-in. It wasn't supposed to be you ask, ask, uh, asking questions. I said, no, you know how I do these things. The caller calls, the, the politician answers the question. If they don't answer the question, I then follow up. That it's not Everyone knows that's the format. Um, and eventually they, they did admit that I had every right to do that. But I never, I never interviewed her again. I knew I wouldn't. <laughs> But this is the thing that uh, uh, Piers Morgan has um, ha- has gone through recently on um, on on his morning show on television in terms of being blacklisted. Because you, I mean, you've got to be nice to these people, haven't you, uh, Ian? If you don't, if you if you're not nice, they won't come back. They're just going to say blacklist him, and that's what they did with Morgan, wasn't it? Look, uh, there is a game that is played. Um, you know that if you are gratuitously rude to a politician, they're unlikely to come back on your programme anytime soon. And you can sort of make, make amends. I mean, I try not to be rude. There's only one time I've ever had anyone say, I won't come on the programme again, but they did two months later. And it was because they had said something which was an outright lie and I called them out for it. And I said, no, I'm sorry, that is a lie and you need to retract it. But they wouldn't. But generally, I don't believe in confrontational interviews unless the politician gives you the excuse to take them to task. Apart from that one incident, I've never had any politician from any party um, or any party sort of say they're not putting people up on my program again. Goodness sake, I'm doing three hours on the Liberal Democrat leadership contest. I'm glutton for punishment on on that. Um, I I think it is entirely wrong for any political party to boycott particular channels or particular programs. They need to be adult and sort out their differences. And yes, 
that I, I can see why they don't want to appear on Piers Morgan. I can see why they don't go on Newsnight. I can see why they don't go on the Today program. Think about it this way. If they don't explain their policies, who's going to do it for them? Yeah. I, I get it. But then you go. But then the problem is, is that you, you then get into something that you describe in your book as a technique, which is called war gaming answers. Yes. You're going to preempt w- what these guys are going to say and then and, and get in there. Give us a bit of a, a behind the scenes. What's going on there? Well, I don't do that because I, it doesn't work for me. Every interviewer will handle an interview in their own way. I was on the media show on Radio 4 with Amal Rajan talking about the art, art of political interviewing. interviewing. And uh, it was me, Andrew Marr, and Rachel Sylvester from The Times. And Amal asked the question, well, how much research do you do before an interview? How do you prepare an interview? And he came to me first. Yeah. And I instantly thought to myself, well, if I tell the truth here, they're going to be horrified, but I've got to tell the truth. So I did. And I said, I don't do any preparation generally. I said, I might, if it's like the prime minister, you kind of you kind of have like maybe five bullet points on a piece of paper in front of you with the subject areas that you want to cover. But to my mind, an interview works best when it's a conversation. I, I want to see where the conversation is going to go. I don't want to be prescriptive over it. Whereas Andrew Marr, um, and this is, I'm not criticizing him for this at all because it clearly works for him. He will think of his initial question and then his producers, somebody will play the role of the politician. They will come up with an answer and they say, well, if the politician gives that answer, I will then follow up with this question. Oh, yeah. Well, I have a memory like a sieve. I could not do that. And I don't think Andrew has reams of notes in front of him. He, he memorizes it all. Well, I can't do that. So I do what works for me. Mm. And if I have a list of questions in front of me, I will ask them. Yeah, and and because that's a natural thing to do in a in a way, and I have done interviews where, where I've done it that way, but I find I just found them really stilted, mm. and that to me they didn't seem natural. I don't think I got as much information out of someone as I would if I did it in a conversational way. And you can still ask very difficult questions in a conversational yeah. way. Yeah, but I mean, because if you go too far one way or you go too far the other way, you know that listeners will agree with absolutely everything that you say. It could be a really boring show, isn't it? Yeah. And on the other hand, if you start jumping down people's throats all the time, you, sp- you speak about this in your book, you start jumping down people's throats and then, you know, you say, ah, oh, yeah, go on then. You're going to get a certain type of an audience, aren't you? Yeah. Well, and it, it does also depend on what type of show it is, what time of day it is. Um, I, I do an evening show. I'm not sure people want Barney's in an evening show. A lot of people will be making the dinner while they're listening. I, I don't want to give people an uncomfortable listen, particularly. Mm. If you're on a breakfast show, you, you can't do half-hour interviews. A breakfast show is a fast-moving show. It, it's got pace to it. Yeah. So you are doing lots of shorter segments, and people generally only listen for about 20 minutes. So yeah. did Drive Time on LBC. It was a very different type of show that, than the one I do now. And I actually prefer the – I mean, bizarrely, even though the Drive Time show is the sort of peak time and has a much higher audience, I prefer the format of the show that I do now because it play, I think it plays to my strengths. Yeah. Happy talk, keep talking, happy talk. Talk about things you like to do. You got to have a dream. If you don't have a dream, how you gonna have a dream come true? 
If you were advising someone about becoming a journalist, someone who's going to be on radio, what's the big piece of advice that you would give them? Is it don't do this for a living? I, I sometimes get sent demo tapes from uh, people, generally people who are maybe in their early 20s, and some of them are very good. But others, you think you have no self-knowledge. You have no understanding that your voice is terrible for radio. Yeah, People won't want to listen to your voice on the radio. Now, people might say that my voice is terrible for radio. I, I'm not a trained broadcaster. Um, and and there, will, there will always be people who love what you do and how you do it. And there will always be people who hate what you do. But on the radio, you've got to have the voice. Right. And if you haven't quite got the voice, there's got to be something else about you, with your experience maybe, that that puts you ahead of um, other competitors. Oh. Uh, and I think there are so many people now who do broadcast journalism courses in this country who automatically think they're going to be the next big thing on the radio. Well, I know full well that I wouldn't get, I would not get the break that I got in 2010 if I was 10 years younger. Right in 2010, national radio stations. Okay, they would try people out, but they would actually then give you a show if you cut the mustard. Nowadays, you have to have a, you have to be a big name. Really, it's very rare that on. I mean, you look at Times Radio have just started. There's nobody new on there. They're, they're all people who've been around the block a bit. Yeah. Um, you you look at LBC now, and I mean, there are lots of bed blocker presenters on LBC, of which I'm one because Nick's been there for about 15 years. James O'Brien's been there, I think, 13. I've been there for 10. Sheila must be about six now. Um, so there aren't that many opportunities because we're obviously brilliant at our jobs and we'll never, ever be um, let, let go. <laughs> um, there aren't many opportunities in speech radio. Yeah. And it's always been an enigma to me that, uh, or mystery to me that in Australia, in Sydney, there are 11 speech radio stations. And yet in this whole country, we've only got well, we've got LBC, which is pure speech and phone-in. You've got Times Radio, but that doesn't do phone-ins. You've got Talk Radio, which does do phone-ins, but they've got so few listeners they don't get many calls. And you, oh, Hashtag burn. <laughs> and you've got um, Five Live, who can't quite make up their mind whether they're sport or news. So, and, that, and that's it. You've got BBC Local Radio, but again, they can't make up their minds whether they're music or speech stations. And so, I mean, I think that's where LBC is scored, because if you tune it into LBC, you know exactly what you're going to get. Mm. Something in the book that really struck me, you were saying in the book, sometimes, and, and I, when I'm listening to you, uh, you know, you do sound like you describe, you sound somewhat very calm, you describe as a swan, but, but what's happening below the surface is that you're paddling like mad because you're juggling with the producers shouting in your ear and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and I think it's amazing stuff that you're doing. <laughs> so you would have to be a juggler. <laughs> This this is the thing that people who know nothing about radio, they think, well, he loves the sound of his own voice. He only works for three hours a day, gets paid a shed load of money. What's not to like? Uh, I don't know from one day to the next what I'm going to be doing that day. It depends on the news agenda. Sometimes there isn't much news. So that that's when you really earn your money. But while you're on air, you, you are doing five things at once. You're talking, oh, yeah. you're listening to the voice in your ear from your producer, you're looking at the phone box screen to see who the next caller is and reading a synopsis of what they might yeah. say. Oh, yeah. um, you're constantly listening for someone swearing, so you've almost got a metaphorical finger over the dump <laughs> button. You're thinking, oh God, I've got to interview, um, I don't know, Nigel Farage in, in 10 minutes' time. What on earth am I going to ask him first of all? Oh, yeah. So you've got all these things swimming around in your mind for three hours. Right. And that is 
pretty exhausting. And when I have finished the show, I am a physical and mental wreck generally. Um, And I go home. I I get home about quarter past 11, have something to eat, sit in front of the telly, and I'm asleep in five minutes. (laughs) Really, I'm not asking for anyone to feel sorry for me because I I love, absolutely love doing it. But to think that you just sort of swan in, say a few words, and then go off and that's all you do is a bit of a misconception. Well, Ian, I want you to keep on talking because the more you talk, the more we, the listeners listening to you, are thinking and you're giving us so much things to think about. Now, in terms of thinking, you've put a lot of your thoughts down into this new book of yours. Tell us a little bit about the book and what it's called and stuff. Well, it's called Why Can't We All Just Get Along? Shout Less, Listen More. Essentially, it's about some of the themes that we've been talking about. Why is it that our public discourse has has declined so much in recent decades? Or has it? Is it just the same as it was 100 years ago, yet we automatically think it's worse now? Yeah. And so I've tried to examine why we're all so nasty to each other, particularly on social media, uh, why language on uh, in the media and in politics appears to have degenerated. And then I finished the book with 50 suggestions as to um, maybe how we can all behave ourselves a bit better and, and make it a, a much nicer environment for people, which might be a sort of vainglorious hope. I don't know. Right. Um, and I've, I've, it's not an autobiography, but as you will have seen, there's, there's lots of autobiographical stuff in it. Um, I, I, I've got it in three sections, um, media, politics, and then I go into lots of different issues and wh- why the language around the immigration debate is so sort of tense. Um, you look at the health service, crime, um, all sorts of other things. And so I explore all these different issues. And... <sighs> it's i'm not sure that i come to any final conclusion it's more of a sort of explainer book in 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 some ways but i i don't actually think in some ways that we are any worse off than it was i mean look look at the cartoons of the late 18th century or 19th century about what goes on in parliament for example yeah. um where the the insults that parliamentarians would dish out to each other were far worse than anything that happens now the behavior in parliament there were physical fights in parliament yeah. so you could argue that actually it is a lot more genteel now but i think one of the one of the fascinating things which i go into quite a lot and it is mainly on social media is the fact that people are so willing to say things to people on social media that they wouldn't dream of saying to their face. And that I think is something that is, is something new. Um, And my experience of this is, I mean, I get abused on Twitter. If you, if you have a lot of followers and you stick your head above the parapet, you are going to get a lot of abuse from people. Um, I sometimes retweet that abuse or quote tweet it. Yeah. And and quite often people will come back and say, oh, I'm really sorry, I went over the top, I didn't really mean that, and which is part of the reason why I do it. But I also have to be aware that if I do that to somebody who is normally a perfectly innocent member of the public, but just on that, that day happened to be having a bad day and called me an effing C or whatever, um, I have a sort of little army of Twitter followers that unbeknownst to me will then swarm in on this person and and come to my defense. Now that's quite nice. That's quite nice for me. And I don't provoke, I, I, 
Yeah, I don't ask them to do it. It's sort of like me being the queen bee and I have all these little bees around me um, and, and they go into attack mode. Now, that for the, for the person that's being attacked who's not used to it, whereas bear in mind, I am used to it, not to say that I like it, but I'm used to it, that can be quite a disconcerting experience for somebody. So I'm, I try to be very careful now about doing that because, um, I, mean, I mean, I'm sure that there are... Um, people get such, such anxiety from this sort of thing that, I mean, terrible things might happen to them. So you do have to be careful. And and it's just also simple things. Like if somebody calls me a twat, my instant human reaction is say, no, you're, you're an effing twat. Huh? I, and then it escalates beyond that. Now, what I try and do now, if I, if that sort of, if I can feel the sap rising, I will call them a Muppet instead. Yeah. Which, in some ways, is slightly more hurtful, I think. But it's an acceptable it's an acceptable word to use. So you just, I, I try, and I don't always succeed, but I try to dial down the rhetoric a bit because it, it is getting so. It's getting to the point now where if I didn't do the job I do, I would seriously think about coming off Twitter. There's, Twitter is wonderful in many ways. Um, I got put in touch with a friend that I'd lost touch with since 1983. I just put his name, I didn't even remember his surname. I said, Ray Hamburg, 1983, English teaching assistant in a German school. Within half an hour, we were DMing each other. And that, that's the brilliant side of Twitter. Yeah. And from a customer service point of view, if ever I have an issue with my bank or my mobile phone provider, I put it on Twitter. Well, you're going to go to a restaurant and they, you didn't like whatever it was. You say, right, that's it. No, no, I, I probably wouldn't on a restaurant. But I mean, I had an issue with my bank this week, which I won't bore you with. But um, I put it on Twitter and they, they, they uh, DM'd me. And I mean, it kind of got sorted out although i'm going to leave them <laughs> um, <laughs> but um i mean it is good from that point of view but there are so many downsides to it as, as well that um and i i am addicted to it i know i'm addicted to it uh, and it's not not a healthy addiction jane garvey from radio 4 was talking on her fortunately podcast about this and she said last weekend she gave up twitter for the weekend and she felt so much better for it i wish i could do that yeah if I go on holiday, which is very rare, but if I do, I try and look at my emails and Twitter maybe in the morning and then in the evening. But by the end of the holiday, it's all day. <laughs> it's part of life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ian, for uh, joining me. And uh, the book for everyone, again, is Why Can't We All Just Get Along? And I'll tell you why you need to read this book. Not just because it's fascinating insight into what Ian does and his background and stuff like that, but because of these tips in it as well. I think it's something that we can all kind of take this on board in terms of asking that question, which, why can't we just get along? Um, so once again, thanks, Ian. Thank you very much. And if anyone wants a signed copy, just go to politicos, politicos.co.uk and I'll happily do a personal dedication. Oh, hold on, we're going to get we're going to get that. So it's politico.uk politicos with an s on the end dot co dot uk and you can get a personally signed book or you can buy it a little bit cheaper from you know where okay you know where you know where okay well look god bless you ian and to everyone else out there remember business is business business is in our hands so let's do what we can to make this world just a little bit of a better place until next time i'll speak to you soon
if you have an outstanding story to tell the world, you could be considered for one of Jonathan's podcasts. Contact us today for world-class brand creative content as well as personal development strategy that builds your brand. Get in touch with Jonathan by emailing reinventatme.com. That's reinventatme.com. <laughs>